0: Well, thank you for that Beck uh, before I, before uh, the message starts this morning, can I just say on behalf of myself and Anna my wife and our, our four little kids that are probably around your ankles at some stage on a Sunday morning, thank you for the welcome that you have given us it's been so warm and so loving and so genuine. so we really appreciate that and we're really looking forward um, To ministering amongst you and with you here in the church. Um, Today's message, we're back in Nehemiah. We're in the chapter 8 of Nehemiah. And just to put a bit of context around that, whilst you you find that passage there, and we'll read it soon uh, the work of building the wall, the whole purpose, the whole reason for Nehemiah and some of the people to come back to Jerusalem has been completed. We saw that back in in chapters 6 and 7. And about a week after Nehemiah has called out tools down for the last time, the people once again gather in Jerusalem. And they gather to celebrate. They gather to hear the word of the Lord and to remember him. So let's read from Nehemiah chapter 8. From early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattitiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Maasiah on his right hand. Empediah, Mishael, Malachijah, Hashem, Hashbadanah, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, and as he as he opened the book in the sight uh, as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen. Amen, lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Banai, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akob, Shabbathani, Hodiah, Maasai, Kalaita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Poliah, the Levites helped the people to understand the law, while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people saying, be quiet for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. On the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses, all of the people, the priests and the Levites, came together to Ezra, the scribe, in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that all the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts, and in the courts of the house of God, and in the square at the water gate, and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. All the assembly of those who had returned from captivity made booths, and lived in the booths. For from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, to that day the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing, and day by day, from the first day to the last day, He read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. This is the word of the Lord. I wonder, have you ever seen a backdrop that makes your jaw drop? Have you ever been to an event maybe or a special occasion where what was behind the speaker was so impressive that you were totally captivated by it. It's not bad, but I think I'm probably safe this morning. I mean, maybe you can remember a time where you're so caught up in your surroundings that what you were hearing became nothing more than white noise or the sound of static in your ears. Years ago, I attended the marriage of a friend which was, well, held at a church in the Gold Coast hinterland. And this was the idyllic wedding setting. I mean, the auditorium was designed to make the most of its surroundings. Behind the stage was this massive glass window that overlooked onto the hinterland below. I was thinking... Choosing this setting is risky. The backdrop had the potential to upstage the marriage ceremony that was taking place in front of it. The danger was that the surroundings where we had gathered would overshadow the reason for us gathering there in the first place. In Nehemiah chapter 8, the people of God are gathered for a special occasion. So the, almost the, the start, the, the rebuilding of the community. We, meet, we might have Independence Days or special days where we celebrate our nation and our beginnings. This was that for them. And where they gather, they gather in the square in front of the Watergate. It might not seem special, but what that actually means is that the backdrop for their gathering is the wall of Jerusalem. The wall that we heard about last time we were in Nehemiah. It was a structure that took just 52 days to build, it was built against all odds. The workforce was only small and they they weren't skilled in the art of rebuilding walls. It was made up of all sorts of people. The job was huge. The site was rubble. There was no heavy machinery like we would have today to help construct this barrier, this perimeter, the wall of the city. And on top of all that, there was intense opposition. The workers on the wall were constantly under threat of attack and wall. Despite all these impediments, the wall was built. And that makes this backdrop an impressive one. But it also makes the choice of the location risky. The backdrop had the potential to upstage what was taking part in front of it. There was a real danger that the surroundings, where the people of Israel had gathered, would be overshadowed, would overshadow the reason for their gathering in the first place. The work is completed in building the wall but the rebuilding of God's people is about to begin and it was key that understanding who God is through his word formed the foundation of who they are as his people we're told it was the seventh month which is one of the most important months in the Hebrew calendar Not only does it signal a new year for them, but according to Leviticus 23, it features three key celebrations in the life of Israel. The Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Festival of Tabernacles. And so to to celebrate this, this feast to God, this New Year's Day celebration, the Israelites gather to hear God's word. This is similar to the way it happened in Exodus. After the Israelites had been brought by God out of slavery into Egypt, in Egypt, they gathered at Mount Sinai to hear the words of the Lord, to be instructed by him. And as God speaks, he reveals himself to them. In Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. He reveals himself to Moses as being the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the children's children to the third and fourth generation. But just hearing the word of God read would not be enough for their audience in Nehemiah's day. See, Nehemiah sees the ability for them to actually understand, to comprehend what is being read to them as of vital importance. He makes reference for their, to their ability to understand five times In chapters 1 to 12, it's the prerequisite to the assembly. The prerequisite isn't one of gender or age. It wasn't based on life experience, social standing, or wearing the right brand of sandal. The invitations went out to everyone who would benefit from hearing the word of God. Read. And the importance of understanding the word is not just seen in the, the people's willingness to have attentive ears. It can also be seen in the work of Ezra and the Levites. See, whilst the people play their part, those who were trained in the law needed to contribute to the work if what was read to be under, was to be understood see one of the issues they had to overcome was that the people who had returned from exile predominantly spoke in Aramaic and the law of Moses was written in Hebrew so obviously they needed it translated for them and to overcome this the Levites seem to have dispersed themselves throughout the people And as it is read, they are translating it so that people can understand. And they're they're interpreting it so that people could apply it to their lives. Verses 7 and 8 of of Nehemiah chapter 8. The Levites helped the people to understand the law, while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly. And they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Now, we don't know specifically which parts of the law was read. But as Moses was the author, it it may have started with the words in the beginning. And doing that would have revealed God as the loving creator. Maybe the people heard God's call to Abram and his promises to him. And this will reveal the Lord as a relational God. The life of Moses may have come up, where God is revealed as the sovereign provider. Sorry, the life of Joseph, the sovereign provider. Or the events of the Exodus, where God is the powerful Saviour and Redeemer of his people. So while the content, Is unknown, the effect it had on the people is. And the people seem to understand something that's truly foundational about the identity of God and of their relationship as a nation to Him. It cut to their hearts, and we're told that they wept. See, in starting to understand who God is, the people seem to be starting to understand who they are as his people. Their identity as a people is, is tied to God's identity, to God's work. God called Abram and from his son brought forth a nation called Israel. The Israelites were a people who would have a relationship with the sovereign God that no other nation had. In Exodus 19, God tells the Israelites that are gathered at Mount Sinai that out of all the peoples of the earth, they are treasured and they are special to him. And through his relationship with the nation of Israel, he would reveal his glory to the world around them. Without God creating, rescuing, and sustaining his people, they would not exist. No wonder they wept. No wonder they began to mourn. And whilst this response, I think, is totally appropriate, God's people, rather than mourning, are told to celebrate. Let's look at verse 10. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. Now I suspect that you're not alone if that response seems strange to you. It appears that God has got his people right where he needs them. And as both a parent and a child, what I'm expecting to hear is something like, now I want you to sit there and think about what you've done. Or maybe, go and don't let me catch you doing that again. But that's not what it says. The people are instead told to go and celebrate, to enjoy the best of the land, the best it had to offer, and to share this blessing with others. The motivation behind the celebration is summed up in a phrase that, I think a lot of us have probably quoted or sung at some stage. They're told not to be grieved because the joy of the Lord is their strength. Let's think about this for a minute. What does it mean for the joy of the Lord to be our strength? After hearing God's word read... The people are are no doubt considering the grief of the Lord. They've heard so much about their failures as a people to uphold their end of the bargain. Yet failure is not all that they've heard. The people were also hearing... Of the faithfulness of God. They're hearing about the grace that he has shown to them as a people. They've heard of rescue for those trapped in slavery. Of forgiveness for the disobedient. Of relationship for the rejected. See, the joy of the Lord is God as a gracious And loving God, who is faithful to his word. And in fact, the people of God are his joy. He delights in rescuing them. He delights in providing for them. And this is where their strength as individuals and as a people lies. The joy of the Lord is their refuge. He is their protector. The strength for God's people did not change according to their circumstances or their surroundings. It did not lie in the stone wall of their city. It did not depend on the presence of an army or the letters of a king. Their strength was the faithfulness of their God. I wonder... As God's people today, is that true for us? Do we find our strength both as individuals and collectively as His church? In God Himself? Maybe not. Or do we choose to find our strength in our circumstances? Good health. Stable jobs, a high status, a good reputation amongst others. Maybe a family that's really loving each other and going well. Is the joy of our circumstances our strength? If this is the case, what happens when things go south? What happens when the strength is gone? When tiredness sets in? When the relentless routine of life takes over? When the workload or the bank balance is too much or too little? In those circumstances, do we still see God as good Gracious and loving. Friends, if our circumstances change who we understand God to be, then we need to ask ourselves, what have we placed our strength in? Consider the circumstances of God's people in Nehemiah's day. Did being exiled in a foreign land make God any less the creating, rescuing, and sustaining God that he had revealed himself to be? No. Neither a city lying in ruin, nor a people scattered and ridiculed, could impinge on God's faithfulness to his word and the certainty of his loving grace for his people. And it's still true for God's people today. No situation that we find ourselves in can affect God's faithfulness to his word and the certainty of his love and grace for us. Friends, if the joy of the Lord is to be our strength, we need to allow God's word to interpret Circumstances and not let our circumstances interpret God's word. See, whilst understanding who God is through the foundation of His words, whilst that helps them understand who He is and who they are as a people, it also shows how we are to live as the people of God. Verse 13 starts with what's probably the equivalent of an elders' meeting. Those who are representatives and leaders of the people all gather around with Ezra and they study the word of God. And they do this to understand how they're to live as God's people. During this time of study, they seem to come across Leviticus 23, where God gives the stipulations for this festival, this week-long festival of tabernacles or of booths to take place. After doing this, we see the, the leaders direct the people. They give them directions that are both obedient and immediate. They proclaim, Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths, as it is written. This festival that they're about to observe was actually a really vivid reminder of the vulnerability of their ancestors in the wilderness, where God remained faithful. He was with them. He was protecting them. And he was providing for them as he brought them through the wilderness and into the promised land. As part of this festival, the Israelites would go out into the surrounding hillside and do a bit of clear felling, rip some branches off trees and, and gather them together. And they'd use these branches to make these little shelters that they would spend the week living in. They act swiftly. They act obediently. Verses 16 and 17 tell us that, So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts, and in the courts of the house of God, and in the square at the water gate, and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. See, God's people have rediscovered this, this festival. And they celebrate it in a way that is very public, prevalent, and is a permeating witness to the faithfulness of God. As a public witness, these leafy structures are built out in the open, on their rooftops, in the courtyards, in the public squares, wherever they could be seen by those who passed by. See, this celebration was to show God's faithfulness, not to hide it. It was also prevalent. Its coverage was widespread. It was throughout all the people, from the oldest to the youngest, from the governor to the gatekeeper. Everyone was involved in the celebration. And geographically, this festival was throughout the whole of Jerusalem, from top to bottom. From the gate of Ephraim, somewhere up in the northeast, to the water gate, down in the southwest of the city. Wherever you went in Jerusalem, this witness was before you. It was also a permeating witness. It worked through all areas of life. This list of locations seems to suggest that it it affected every area. It affected their home life, where they socialised. It affected their religious gatherings. It affected their workplace. In all of life's environments, the people of God were a faithful witness to him a witness of his faithfulness. The best example I could think of for that today is the federal election. I mean, you can't drive down a main road without seeing the face of a candidate, can you? People have got it on their their front fences. It's all over social media. It's all over the radio, TV. People are talking about it over the dinner table. They're discussing it in staff rooms and probably over a cuppa at church morning tea. Politicians know how to witness. Do we? I'm sure we're all pretty familiar with Jesus' words in Matthew 28. He says to his disciples gathered there, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. The question this poses to me, and I think to all of us as disciples of Jesus. When you consider your life as a Christian, and when you consider our witness as a church community, would you describe it as public? Is it a witness that's seen, that's seen all over our local area, or is it just in Ogroad? is it present in our homes where we socialize where we work where we play where we learn and as we consider and, and answer these questions in our own mind i think it's it's critical to assess our motivations what are the motivations behind our need to witness And I'd see our motivations come from either of two options. We're either motivated by pride, or we're motivated by humility. Both pride and humility are fantastic motivators. But they come from different origins. Pride ultimately comes from a heart that is seeking to achieve results independently of God. It will cause us to work hard, but in the end, it is merely a witness of our work and our faithfulness. Humility, on the other hand, comes from a heart that knows it can achieve nothing of value outside of the work of God. Humility, too, will cause us to work hard, but in the end... It will testify to God's power and his faithful work in and through us. Our lives will testify to something, friends. Is it a witness that points people to God's faithfulness or to ours? See, our salvation is dependent not on our faithfulness, but on God's. Our identity as God's people is not built on our acts of obedience or our good works. It's built on Jesus. God is still gathering his people so they can see him for who he truly is. And everyone who has rejected him, everyone Who has messed up? They're all invited to come to the cross of Jesus. And as we meet our Saviour there, it will no doubt cause us to weep and mourn. But that should not be the sum total of our experience of the cross. We're commanded to go and to celebrate to enjoy the blessings of the new life Jesus gives us and to share those blessings with others as a witness of God's faithfulness in Christ. And we have the opportunity to do that as a church this morning through communion. If you're helping with communion, if you could come forward now, please. That would be appreciated. See, communion is to be a a celebration that reminds us of God's faithfulness. It points us to God's ultimate revelation of himself, the greatest expression of his love and grace, which is found in the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The elements we use remind us of Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross, dying in our place and freeing us from the consequences of our sin. The bread representing Jesus' body and the juice representing his blood speak of God's faithfulness to his promises to rescue his people from their slavery. Jesus invites all people to recognize that they have rejected him and to trust in him for forgiveness and new life. And this is the Lord's table, the table that he has given us to remember this. It is for everyone who trusts in Jesus. Everyone who trusts in him as their saviour and their Lord. And if this is you this morning, we invite you to join us, to remember and to celebrate. But if this is not you, if you haven't put your trust in God's faithfulness, if you haven't put your trust in Jesus for your strength, that I encourage you that as we, as we do this, that you would take time to reflect on what we've talked about this morning. Reflect on who Jesus is as revealed in his word and what he has done for you. In a moment, you will be served with the elements. Would you feel free to, to eat the bread in your own time and reflect on the cross of Christ, But I ask that you hold the cup. That is something that we'll drink together as a sign of our unity in Christ. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me.